This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Paul's love letter to the Philippians. Uh, Can I remind you again that this is a church that the Apostle Paul raised up in Philippi and uh, with his traveling evangelists, Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke. And uh, you remember how that he uh, won the family of Lydia and her household to the Lord, to the Philippian jailer in his household, and then obviously others would join in that. So uh, by the time he's writing here, uh, 10 years has passed. And so you can imagine the church in Philippi was a thriving church by this time. It was a church that was very dear to his heart, and uh, they were very, uh, he was very dear to their heart. Uh, there was a, a tremendous mutual affection, love between, uh, between Paul and the church at Philippi. Uh, can I say that uh, last Sunday night, which was part two, uh, just to point out that I'm not an idiot, uh, I did make a, a mistake two or three times when we were talking about uh, Saul of Tarsus, who was witness to uh, Stephen, the first martyr, and I kept calling Stephen Saul. I'm sure anybody listening to that on the podcast will realize I'm not that stupid. It was just a slip of the tongue. But anyway, my wife corrected me afterwards. And, uh, uh, somebody should have corrected me at the time, and that would have made it okay. But anyway, here we are. And uh, so we come now to chapter 2. This is part 3, but we come to chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading here. Begins, therefore, therefore. Somebody said that if you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. And it's there for a reason. And uh, now the translators of the Bible uh, did us a great service in dividing up the Bible into, not only into books, but into chapters and then into verses. And for the most part, that's wonderful. It makes it easier for us to read and to follow. However, once in a while, they just didn't get it quite right, and this is one of those occasions. Because actually, the last four verses of Philippians 1 and the first four verses of Philippians 2, are they flow together. It really is like a whole paragraph together. So let's just back a little bit to chapter 1, verse 27. It begins there, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So you can sense by him writing this that he's implying that at some point or other there was some tension and friction that had come into this church. And we see that actually uh, in the last chapter, particularly between two ladies in the fellowship. And so he's concerned about that. Now, he's not being uh, harsh with them because he loves this church dearly, but he's just pointing out things to be careful about to make sure uh, that they don't get involved in any kind of a strife and all that goes with that. So he says, I'm not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, and having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. Therefore, 
And so the therefore is because of what uh, was previous. Then he follows on. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so Paul here is making an impassioned plea to the believers in the church of Philippi for unity, for love, for humility, uh, for selflessness, for service within the body, all of these things that make for a happy, contented fellowship. And he's playing with them. He's making a plea with them. And he's saying, please make sure you're of one mind, that you're standing together in one spirit, that you have the, the, for the faith of the gospel, you're striving together, that you're all together in this, that nothing is going to come between you that will separate you, that will cause schism within the, the fellowship. That's what he said. Excuse me. That's what he's saying. And don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. In other words, don't go way above your station and think that you know it all above your brothers and your sisters. Be humble in what you do and act out in humility. And so that's the basis of what he's writing about and what he's writing to them for. Because the church at Philippi is coming under some stress and strains, not only from inside, but from outside. Now remember, this is a Roman colony. These were Greek people who had been giving, who had been giving the right to be Romans. Uh, Augustus Caesar announced that Philippi would be a Roman colony, and with all the rights and privileges that would go with that, so now they would be citizens of Rome. The trouble was, as Christian believers, the bother was that then there was a demand put upon them to worship Caesar as Lord and as Savior. And you can imagine that's going to cause Christians great trouble trouble of conscience in practical terms when it came to doing business and all the rest of it, even within their community. So there was all kinds of pressures that was coming from the outside, and often any church fellowship, if there's pressures from the outside coming, there's a danger that there's tensions rise from the inside. And that's what was happening in the church of Philippi. So he's telling them whatever's going on around you, make sure that it doesn't get into you. Make sure that it doesn't get into the fellowship and cause all kinds of schisms and all kinds of problems there. So be humble. Don't be arrogant. Uh, don't be selfish. Don't put self first. Put others first before yourself. Obviously, we've got to put Christ first, but others then first before yourself. And so he makes this impassioned plea for them to do this. But then, not only does he make an impassioned plea, but he gives them a perfect pattern. <laughs> a perfect pattern to follow. And there can be no perfect pattern greater than the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. himself. And the next seven verses are probably the greatest, the most profound statement ever made about the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. It's tremendous. It's almost beyond our understanding 
It's so deep and so great. So that's what we want to read this morning. So he's giving them this perfect example to follow. So he said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude, let this way of thinking, let your behavior, let this be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the morphe of God, who in essence was God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ was God, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit, co-eternal with the Father, co-eternal with the Holy Spirit. He was and is God. But when he came to this earth, he was God in the flesh, but God nonetheless, who in the form of God, this talks about his preexistence before he came to this earth. Before he ever came to this earth as Jesus of Nazareth, he was and always was in the form of God because he was the second person in the divine Godhead. So this speaks of his Godhood to let us know and everyone know who we're talking about. Who being in the form of God, the morphe of God, an inner essence God that means, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. A robber is someone who takes something that's not his and claims it for his. He, he claims something that doesn't belong to him. But Jesus didn't do that because his godhood, his deity, did belong to him. He didn't steal anything. He didn't lie or he didn't cheat about it. He was God even though he came in human flesh. John says... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So He was God. Paul writes to Timothy and says He was God manifest in the flesh. <laughs> and so He was God. But he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because he was God. But that also means, some of your margins may say, he did not consider it something to be grasped and held onto exclusively for him. You know, he could have said, human beings are sinners, they're lost, they're all going to hell. But I don't care because I'm the Son of God and I'm all right. I'll hold on to what I've got. I'm not going to release anything that I've got for them. I'll just stay happily where I am and let them all be lost and go to hell. But he didn't do that. He didn't hold on to that. He could have stayed on the throne beside his father, but he didn't. Thank God he didn't. He came and he released himself from that wonder and majesty and glory as position at the right hand of the Father. It says, but he made himself, 
of no reputation. Uh, the King James says he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. This is the, what theologians call the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying of Christ. Now, what did he empty himself of? Certainly not his deity. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been God. He couldn't have done that because he was God. He emptied himself of many, many, many of the great privileges he had as the Son of God at the right hand of the Father. He emptied himself of that. He emptied himself of the glory and the majesty that he had. You know, part of his great prayer in John 17 is that we will see the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. But he laid that aside. He emptied himself of that, as it were. He laid that aside. Only once do we see in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration for that brief moment whenever God took the veil away and Peter, James, and John saw him in his glory. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation in a vision saw him in his effulgent glory, which was marvelous, which none of the disciples had ever seen before. But for the most part, he laid that aside, and he came. Now, this shows us the great condescension of Christ. Christ coming down from the very throne of the Father, down and down and down and down and down. And this is profound beyond words. Words are not even adequate to describe what happened here, but we must make an attempt, as Paul did. So he said, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He who was in the form of God takes now the form of a servant. What a gap, what a chasm between those two statements. He who was God came in human flesh and took upon himself the form of a servant. And everywhere you read in the Gospels, you'll see how he was a servant. Uh, Graham Kendrick, many years ago, wrote that great, uh, wonderful song, The Servant King. And it's a tremendous theology in that song. It's a great song about God himself coming in human flesh and taking the form of a servant. What a statement. And coming in the likeness of man. There's not one image of Jesus Christ that was ever left. Not a painting, not a sculpture, nothing. So the reality is we don't know actually really what he looked like. But what we can be sure was he looked fully human. And he probably looked like a Middle Eastern Jewish man because he was born a Jew. We don't know the color of his hair. We don't know his height, not like that. But he looked just like a man would look. This is God we're talking about. This is the Son of God coming in the likeness of man. Then it says, and being found in appearance as a man. The word is schema. Outward appearance as a man. Here is the God-man. Totally God, and yet totally man. 
coalescing together in a human body. Who can explain that? It's a mystery, isn't it? We believe that by faith. Our minds cannot take that in completely. And this is the wonder of what Paul's talking about. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The great mark of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry was humility, wasn't it? He humbled himself. The great example with his disciples, how he washed their feet. Imagine the Son of God who created the ends of the earth and everything in it, because without him was nothing made that was made, the Bible says. And yet he stooped down as a humble servant to wash his disciples' feet. That's amazing, isn't it? That's incredible. That is true humility. Nothing was beneath him. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. See the steps in his condescension from the very throne of God to the highest heights of heaven he humbles himself as a man as a servant even to the point of death he who knew no sin because it's the wages of sin that is death he who was immortal, who did not have the sin nature working in him, but he fully surrendered himself, voluntarily laid down his life. No man can take my life. I give my life. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He who was the victor over death and hell and sin... He who death had no claim on. Death is a claim on us. We live in a, a mortal body, death-doomed body, that will die unless the Lord comes. Because your body's still awaiting our redemption. This physical body's awaiting that. But none of that was working in the Son of God. So therefore, he had to humble himself to the point where he laid down his life, even unto death. That's incredible, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. <coughs> he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He who was the resurrection and the life humbled himself Let's to the point of death for us.
for you and for me. This is the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? This is the beauty of Christ. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Of all of the ways to die, the cross was the cruelest, the most barbaric, the most humiliating, the most shameful. It was reserved for criminals, for slaves, for insurrectionists like Barabbas and his ilk. It was a disgrace. It was a shame to hang on a Roman cross. He was hung between two thieves. He was stripped naked. He was laughed at. He was scorned. Even the thieves beside him says, mocking things. People said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. What humiliation. What condescension. Even, Paul says, the death of the cross. Roman citizens were not subject to the cross. It was too barbaric. It was too shameful for a Roman citizen. But Jesus was treated as a common criminal and beaten and scorned and spat upon and crucified and shamed and humiliated. And he did that for you and he did that for me. Even the death of the cross. But then Paul didn't leave it there. Now he changes tack. He's talked about his condescension. Now he talks about his exaltation. <laughs> Listen to this. Therefore, and we know why it's therefore, because of what we just read. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Ah, wait a minute. God also has highly exalted him. How higher could God have exalted him since he was the Son of God, since he was on the throne of God, since he was the King of angels, since he was the Prince of glory? How much more could he be exalted than that? That God highly exalted him because of what he'd done, because of the sacrifice that he had made, because of what he had suffered for us. The angels in glory to even to this very day, they must be amazed and astounded at what Jesus did for us on this earth. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. No wonder Satan hates the name of Jesus. No wonder it has become the curse word of this world. Where people spew it out, even at the point where they hardly even know they're doing it. They just spew it out as a, as a filthy curse word. But it's a name which is above every name. There are lots of great names today. Lots of great names in history. 
There are lots of household names today. And yet Jesus' name has been reduced to a swear word in society. Notice they don't do it with Muhammad or Buddha, but they do it with Jesus. See, it's a spiritual thing that they don't know. To blaspheme the very name of the Son of God. But it's a name that is above every name. <laughs> that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee by every tongue confess, even in the very heavenlies. Well, we know in heaven itself, that's not a problem. They do that gladly and willingly. But what about the heavenlies, the demonic realm? Everyone will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know that name, by the way. They know that name. They fear that name. Of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Even the very dead that will be raised <laughs> will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you remember in Mark chapter 5 how Jesus went to release the man of Gadara from those demonic forces? And do you remember what that man said? It was actually that lead demonic being that spoke through him. We know who you are. <laughs> You're Jesus, the Son of God. Are you going to come and torment us before the time? They knew exactly who he was. They knew exactly what he had come to do. And they feared and they trembled at that very name. All hell knows that name. Those sons of Sceva that tried to cast that devil out and how that man turned on him and with that supernatural strength tore them and beat them up. And they said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? <laughs> they know that name. All heaven knows it. All hell knows it. But do you know what? For the past 2,000 years, this part has been unfulfilled. That those on the earth shall bow the knee and confess with their mouth. But by and large, those on earth hasn't done that yet. Sure they haven't. Haven't done that yet. But they will, one day. And our prayer is that they will do it here and now rather than there and then. Because if we do it here and now, it's because we want to do it. There and then, and not because they want to do it, it's because they have to do it. And they will do it. And they may do it through gritted teeth, but they will do it. That's a promise from God. They will bow the knee and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't you glad that you've already confessed? Aren't you glad you already bowed the knee? Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God was patient and merciful and kind and generous 
to win us and to woo us to Christ. And that every tongue should confess. There's something about confessing Jesus with the tongue, isn't there? If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. There's something, a public declaration, a public announcement that Jesus is Lord that seals it. And so Paul, he made an impassioned plea for humility, for selflessness, for love, for mercy. And then he gives Jesus Christ as the perfect pattern for that. But then we may say, well, that's fair enough. That's fine as far as that goes. Wonderful. Profound. Almost beyond our understanding. But you're talking, David, about Jesus, the Son of God. Hmm. And that's why Paul didn't leave it there either. Because he probably knew that's what they would think. And so that's why he writes now about two other people, which we'll see in a moment. Just two ordinary five-eighths Jew blogs. Two ordinary believers. But first of all, let me just quickly go. Therefore, my beloved... See, he loved this church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, not only in my presence, not, in my, oh, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, work out your own salvation doesn't mean to say, go and figure out how to get saved. He's really talking to save people. The troubles you're facing, the problems that are arising, the tensions that are there, work it out. You can work it out, Paul says. God has worked in you. Now work that out of you. All the ability you need to work out those problems and those difficulties you're facing is in you. Now work it out of you. Work out your own deliverance with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, when tensions arise in any fellowship, there's complaining, there's murmuring, there's groaning, there's moaning, and Paul says, stop it! Because if you don't, It'll cause all kinds of problems, exacerbates everything. And it'll do you no good, and the enemy will get in there. That you may become blameless, faultless, innocent, and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. Ah. The dread of every pastor's heart. You could put years of your life into somebody. Blood, sweat, and tears. 
And they can walk away not only from you, but they can walk away from God. And you have the feeling that your labor was all in vain. That's a horrible feeling. But every pastor has faced it many times. So he said to the church, don't do this to me. I don't want to think I've labored in vain over you. I want to think that all the effort has come good in the end. That's what he's saying. Yet, yes, he says, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. He's on trial in Rome for his faith. Throughout this letter, he's encouraging them that he feels he's going to be free. Actually, he did get free. But he did die in Rome later. But that's another story. He writes to Timothy about that in his second letter. But here, in this instance, he feels he will get free. He will overcome this. He will win his case. And he did. But he said, even if I don't, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, the priest would take a drink offering and pour it onto God as, a, as an offering onto He says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, so be it. He says, for your believers, he says, it'll be worth it. What an attitude. And then he writes about these two men. All right, you may say, well, you've been talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He's got all that power and all the rest of it. So he can do that. He can humble himself. He can die even to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. But what about the rest of us? Well, he says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Ah. Paul was wanting to send someone to Philippi to find out how they were getting on. Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to Rome with an offering, which is talked about later on in the book. So Paul wants to send somebody back to see what state they are to encourage them. But you know what? Of all the believers in Rome, because there was a church in Rome, even though he was under house arrest, some of them would come and see him. But for all the believers in Rome, he couldn't get one person. Think of it. One, he couldn't get one person who would make that 800-mile journey to the church at Philippi to find out how their brothers and sisters were. They didn't care. That's what he says. They all stick their own. He says, not the things of others. Not one. Sometimes you think as much change in church in 2,000 years. <laughs> not one could be bothered. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But, speaking of Timothy, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Ah. He says, I tried to get somebody else to go, but nobody would volunteer. Not one. 
for he says, I've got Timothy. And as much as Timothy's a great blessing to me here, he says, I want to send him to you. And you know him. He's a proven character. And they did know Timothy. Church at Philippi knew Timothy well. So he says, Timothy is going to come. Timothy will humble himself. He doesn't think he's too big to do such a task. He'll come and he'll see how you are. Then he talks about Epaphroditus. Yes, I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger, the one who ministered to my need. And so Epaphroditus was this Gentile believer in the church of Philippi, and the church of Philippi raised an offering to send to Paul under house arrest in Rome because they really cared about him. They sent Epaphroditus to do this, and Paul loved this man, Epaphroditus. He says he's my fellow worker. <laughs> look, at, look at the commendation he gives to Epaphroditus. My fellow worker, my fellow soldier, my brother, and your messenger the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only in him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So here's a man who brought the offering but he took sick, seriously sick. It looked as if he was going to die. We don't know what happened. We don't know what it was. Whatever it was, it was very, very serious. But Paul says, God had mercy on him. And he had mercy in me. Because I'm going through plenty. And God knew I didn't need any more. <laughs> he didn't need any more sorrow added to me. So he spared Epaphroditus. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Two ordinary believers and yet two who was selfless in their service to Christ, who was humble enough to take on the task. Even though they could be with the great apostle Paul, they would take that long, arduous, dangerous journey back to that church just to be a blessing to them and to help Paul to understand what was happening. And so Paul gives Christ as the perfect example and so that we have no out. He says, well, here's two ordinary men, and yet look what they did. Look what they did. Look how they served. Look at the blessing they were. Look at the humility. Look at the selflessness of their lives. And be encouraged to do what they did. And so Paul is writing to this great church He's encouraging. He's provoking gently. And as he goes on, and we'll read later into chapter 3 and into chapter 4, it's just a little short book. I told you before, you can read it in 10 minutes. 
but it's packed full of instruction for the church of Christ today. Amen? Amen. 2,000 years old, but it's still as relevant and as fresh today as it ever be. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.